Hey, Bobby, long time uh, no see, man. Hey, can we just get a quick station ID for our show? What do you, what do you want? I'm the Rebel Bobby Collins. Everybody knows who I am. This is my son and tag team partner, Brendan Collins. What do yeah, you want? I, I just, I just want a, like a little station ID. Like, you don't get too close to me. You're way too big. Can, do you know what we're doing? Yeah, you're here with Wrestling With The Truth Podcast. Holy crow. Welcome everybody to Wrestling With The Truth. My name is PC Hunter. Flying solo at the moment, but we're expecting possibly a late run-in from that dastardly heel NWO machine at some point. But luckily, I've been joined by a very special guest this evening, Canadian wrestling legend and noted author himself, Vance Nevada. Vance, how you doing this evening? I'm doing fantastic. It's great to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you uh, have you join us. It's um, it's a thrill. I, I know we had chatted after I heard you on a, a friend of ours, uh, his podcast, Andy the Tax Man, just uh, heard a, a plethora of information about the book that you've got coming out. So we chatted and said, you know, we got to get you on here as well for a chance to, to promote that. So uh, so do you want to mention, uh, first of all, what we're talking about as far as the book? What's the title again? The book is uh, Uncontrolled Chaos, Canada's Remarkable Professional Wrestling Legacy. The easiest way to describe it is, you know, this is uh, the definitive textbook on professional wrestling in Canada from 1930 to 2021 that covers, you know, in-depth sort of uh, region by region, uh, sequential order of events in each of the territories from from east to west. Uh, So the Maritimes is right there up front. Uh, And then uh, sort of break in the middle to talk about uh, what the expansion of the WWE did to the territory system of wrestling, how that changed. So if you got somebody who's a fan of wrestling right now, that's only been a fan for about 20 years, they've only ever seen independent wrestling and WWE. They don't know how guys used to be able to make a living in Canadian wrestling. Uh, so distinguish, you know, sort of how that transition took place. Um, one thing that I think is really unique about the book is usually not a lot of coverage is actually given to the independents. Uh, you know, it's usually glossed over or ignored completely. And there's over a hundred pages that talk about the independents the same way, region by region, promoter by promoter. Um, then uh, there's a uh, very detailed uh, title history section, which probably has been the biggest battle that I've had with the publisher. Cause they say, you know what, you've got 480 pages here. Um, you know, we need to cut some pages. And I said, no, we can't. We can't cut pages. This is a history book. This isn't a novel. You know, we don't intend for someone to sit down and one evening and, and, and read this whole thing. So um, the title history section includes championships from more than 200 organizations, past and present, and over 600 titles and the lineage of all of those belts. So very excited to have that uh, published. Uh, and then a records and stats section, which uh, has been the hardest part to put together. But I think, you know, for diehard fans is going to be the most rewarding to see, you know, here's, a, you know, the origins of these things. Here's some Canadian firsts. Uh, and here's, uh, you know, a listing of the top 50 drawing shows in Canada of all time. Uh, and then my favorite, but I know it's also going to be uh, probably the thing that I get roasted on for the book is a statistical tracking of the top 100 men, 
women and tag teams of all time. Yeah, okay. Machine, how you doing? Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Had a, had a little work issue and uh, things went a little squirrely, but we're here. And so, Vance, how's things going, man? You know, I couldn't imagine them better. Uh, you know, I'm really excited. I mean, this this book, you know, in terms of a dedicated approach has been like since the pandemic, you know, began and the whole world was on pause. There was no place to go, uh, nothing to do. And, and, uh, and, you know, wrestling was on hold and I needed something creatively to do. So after about six months and things weren't reopening again, I said, well, let's, uh, let's look through all this material that I've amassed since 1994 and, and make some sense of it in a way that, uh, is going to add some value. So I'm yeah. glad to see that finally, uh, you know, coming to the, uh, the light at the end of the tunnel, we're going to be able to share it with the world. Yeah, that's fantastic, man. I know during the pandemic, I actually finished the book too. And uh, I ran out of crayons because I wasn't allowed into Dollarama, but it's it's finished. Congratulations. Thanks, buddy. I know it actually said, you know, for three to four years, but hey, it took me sooner. <laughs> that's an achievement. <laughs> This isn't your first foray into to writing, though, Vance. You, you've done previous works as well, right? Yeah, I did. Uh, uh, in 2009, I did a book that was focused on the history of wrestling in Western Canada. Um, and then it, basically, as soon as that book came out, you know, I had people reaching out to me saying, OK, now you've covered the West. When are you going to tackle the East? Um, and people may not realize, you know, until you dig in, like the East, particularly in Ontario and Quebec, that's a monster of a territory to try to tackle. Uh, I mean, you, like you, you could take, a, take, for example, Stampede Wrestling. Stampede Wrestling, over the span of its run uh, from 1946 to, to 1989, promoted over 8,000 shows, uh, which is a lot of shows, but mm -hmm. it, was, it was one weekly loop. So you knew you had Calgary Friday, Edmonton Saturday, uh, Lethbridge Sunday, uh, or no, Sunday was typically off. Monday, Lethbridge, Tuesday, Red Deer, Wednesday, Saskatoon, Thursday, Regina, then you're back in Calgary, and that was the loop. Uh, and if there was any deviation from that, it was because, oh, maybe Lethbridge wasn't drawing very well, so we're going to do that biweekly and do Medicine Hat on the opposite weeks. But you've got six, six nights a week to fill. Uh, when you get into Ontario and Quebec, you have, uh, you know, crews like Maple Leaf wrestling out of Toronto, where whenever you see the results for the Toronto shows, you see like, man, they were carrying such a large crew. You'd have like a 10 match show in Toronto in the seventies. But what they were doing in the meantime is you'd have that whole crew amass in Toronto on Thursday night at Maple Leaf Gardens. But then they were split into three crews and, and Frank Tunney was running three towns a night for, for the rest of the week. So now you've got, you know, 21 shows a week to track. And then when you get into Montreal, you know, same kind of situation when the Rougeaux, you know, held stead, they were running two and three shows a night, except for Montreal. And the same thing, the big show was Montreal. Then they hit the road and hit Chicoutimi and Captain Madeleine and, and Sherbrooke and all the other towns surrounding. And it got even worse, you know, in, in 1971, when the Vachons ran opposition to the Rougeaux and they ran opposition in a big way. So in Quebec, 1971, 72, 73, you had five wrestling shows a night happening in Quebec somewhere because you had the Rougeaux battling with the Vachons and each with these like colossal blockbuster crews and each running two to three towns a night. So to try to track all of that down has been a, a bit of a monster. But 
as I started to dig into it, I said, well, you know, it's also been now more than 10 years since the last book. So by the time I would finish this one, it would be time to do an update on the West book. So, you know, let's, let's go all in and, and do a national book and, 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 and do it right. Yeah, completely. Yeah. And uh, you had made mention too, it, it gets a little bit hairy because you are, of course it's wrestling. So we also have some, a little bit of made up history, stuff like that, oh. made up title changes, different names, different personalities, all that stuff. Yeah, that's, that's probably the biggest nightmare. You know, if someone is a hockey enthusiast and they're going to research the career of Wayne Gretzky, uh, you know, they just have to do a Google search for Wayne Gretzky <laughs> and you're going to find all of his stats and, and whatever. So first of all, in terms of wrestling, no one kept the stats uh, because their perception was, well, you know, wrestling is, you know, the legitimacy of the sport is kind of questionable. So the stats don't matter. So first of all, the stats don't exist, but then you have the, the situation where a wrestler may have wrestled under five or six different names during their career. So to try to like put that all together and compile it has been, has been a bit of a nightmare, but uh, I'm, I'm glad to see the other side of the, of the dilemma. Hey, Vance, so here's a, it's kind of an odd question because that's what I do. So was there any big surprises for you when you were going back into some history? Like, do you sit there and go, Holy shit, I had no idea he was so-and-so too. There, there definitely have been some of those that, that have happened. And sometimes it's not until you're comparing notes because maybe you've seen the results and you're like, oh yeah, and I've seen that guy. He, he was, uh, you know, Jean-Louis on uh, the West Coast and he was John the Lumberjack on the East Coast and he was the hangman in Montreal. Uh, and you know, then you start to put it all together and say, wow, like this guy is actually, you know, pretty phenomenal. And I think that's going to come out, you know, where when you when you get into the the top 100 list, uh, and as we're still in layout and design, I'm still doing the research. I was doing research up until noon today uh, to make sure, like, do I have this right? You know, because if you get it wrong, and people will be like, "Well, wait a minute," you know, you said that uh, this guy was number one when actually this other guy is, has to be number one. Uh, but I think the what will surprise people is, you know, when you compare, you know, typically when people are talking about wrestling, they might talk about, uh, you know, and you hear this, you know, on the independent level, particularly, who is the Mount Rushmore of Winnipeg in the independent era? And that's what they want to talk about. So they'll put together this, this uh, self-perceived Mount Rushmore of a particular time and place. But when you, when you actually can cross-check that against, well, geez, you know, what is the schedule that Whipper Billy Watson maintained as the top drawing, you know, attraction of his day compared to today? Like, how do those records mesh up? And does anybody today in the modern independence actually have the statistical track record of matches and wins that is competitive with what was happening in, in the independence or in the territory days? So there's definitely going to be some surprises for people in terms of names they've never heard of before. Uh, and the best example I can think of is a guy named Sam Chuck. So Sam Chuck is a, is a name that I had seen, you know, as I was doing the results research and we were, and we did extensive results research. The, the count of shows that we have tracked from 1930 to now is over 58,000. So it's like 58,640 or something. So we went deep. But uh, so I would see these names and, and I would track the stats by promotion. Uh, and then after I had the whole province done, then I would roll that up into a provincial list. And then, 
eventually integrated it all into one spreadsheet, which is a monster. But um, Sam Chuck was a name that kept coming up. And what I was really surprised to see as, as this thing went forward, no one's ever seen anything written about Sam Chuck. Well, he was 165 pound middleweight guy from Montreal, uh, started his career in 1931, but he wrestled for 30 years. And in the Montreal scene, it was so busy, not only with the big shows that we're aware of with Yvonne Robert and Mad Dog Vachon and the Rougeos, the club scene, which is kind of like the independent uh, equivalent of the day, was so active that you could wrestle every night of the week in Montreal and area. And in many cases, uh, the shows were so close together that you might see, you know, a guy like Sam Chuck wrestling in Montreal in the opener and then zipping over to Verdun. Uh, for later in the evening to work the main event. So this guy might be working like eight or nine matches a week for 30 years. Uh, and so Sam Chuck is a guy that's like right up there near the top 10 of all time, most prolific wrestlers in Canada that no one's ever heard of before. Now you mentioned that uh, I know on, on a, the other episode that I was listening to that um, your, your unique uh, way that you were doing the research for this and, and how you were coming up with your information and, and how it tied into your actual wrestling career as well. Yeah, you know, I think if someone was doing research now, it's certainly a lot easier because now so many more newspapers are online uh, and you can do a keyword search and it kind of pulls up your, your papers you need and the date. So, you know, I've been doing that the last the last couple of days, you know, let's, let's go into this, the Quebec newspaper archive that has all the papers from Quebec and you can pretty much pull down a night by night schedule for the guys that work in the territory, cross reference that against my Word document and away you go. I mean, uh, back in the 90s when we got started like that was unheard of technology you know we were going into uh, you know where I started was at the Winnipeg Provincial Archives right behind the bay downtown now, the building that used to be the Winnipeg Civic Auditorium which was kind of you know interesting that I'm doing the research on wrestling in a building that has so much wrestling history itself and it began just cranking those microfilms <laughs> hours upon hours with a notebook uh, and you couldn't bring pens in there. So you're doing it all by pencil, uh, you know, and, you know, this was before everybody had a laptop too. So it just like very labor intensive, but uh, you know, what I would do is I would, I would marry my wrestling bookings with, with opportunities to get in and research. So if I knew I was going to be in Regina, then I would plan to be in Regina at noon and go spend three hours in the library before I had to be at the building. And so you're trying to make the most of the time, and, you know, kind of like those, those weird things, anyone that's done microfilm research knows, you know, you don't want to be wasting time to try to find a librarian to get the next piece you need. So you're like, just give me 10 reels and let me go. And a lot of these places would be like, no, no, your limit is two at a time. <laughs> no one else is using these microfilms. I, I trust that I'll be the only guy sitting here at these machines today. And so after you've like interrupted them, you know, four or five times in an hour for the next two reels and the next two reels, because we're looking for something very specific. I'm only looking at the Wednesday, Thursday and Friday newspapers every week to get the, the, the either the ad and the results or whatever the case is. Um, then suddenly they'd be like, OK, how many do you need? Because you're taking a lot of our time. So why don't you just bring me 20 at a time <laughs> and leave me alone for the day? Um, but. I think, you know, and I've, I've said this to my colleagues because they say, well, you know, how, how big is this file now? Um, the results file in a Word document at size 10 font in Pro Wrestling Illustrated style format for the results is now uh, over 6,000 pages of, of information. 
and uh, it's a monster. Uh, and had I known how much work it was, it was going to be at the beginning, I probably would never have started. Uh, but now I'm so far in, like, it's too late. I got to keep going. Uh, we'll never uncover it all, but I, I can guarantee you, nobody has a more complete list of, uh, of wrestling results than I do. Sure. Yeah. It, so where's the interest born from? Like, were you always like a, a stats guy? Like, were you always into this side of it or this, is it just something that just grew? You know, it, it kind of happened organically. Um, the guy that had broke me into the wrestling business was a guy named Ernest Rowe. And uh, Ernie lived in Somerset, Manitoba. Uh, he was, uh, you know, kind of a semi-retired pipeline guy when, when I met him at 63 years old. Um, and, you know, he always talked about his career and, and people that he had met and people that he had worked with. And I thought, well, that, that's interesting because I've never heard of him. I've never seen photos. I've never seen his name on a poster. Um, and so I was, I was curious about it always, but there was nowhere for me to really look. And uh, I'd been wrestling about a year and we had TV on, on shock, shock cable, lo local cable access television show. And one of the commentators on one of my matches had made reference that Vance Nevada was trained by Ernest Rowe, who is a former tag team partner of Frenchie Champagne, and they were a very successful team. Well, now I had like a little bit more of a, a nugget to look for. And so I actually, this whole journey began in 1994 when I was actually uh, looking for information on my trainer, Ernest Rowe, that I could maybe like put something together and maybe give him as a thank you for helping me break into the business. Um, and what I found out was that the bio that he had given me was completely fabricated. Uh, you know, he's like, I've been a wrestler since 1953. No, he was a wrestler since 1978. Uh, and he'd only had maybe in 20 matches in his whole life. But in the meantime, the discovery of, well, wait a minute, Frenchie Champagne was a huge deal. Uh, you know, in the 50s and 60s, there was no bigger star in Winnipeg in terms of local wrestling. Um, you know, he was like the main eventer on the local show. And then he would be the referee when the big show would come through from Minneapolis uh, and then you start to see, you know, well, not only not only uh, Frenchie Champagne, but Moose Murawski came out of Winnipeg. Bulldog Bob Brown came out of Winnipeg. The Von Steigers came out of Winnipeg. Roy McClarty, George Gordianko, Gordon Nelson. And it was just like, wow, like, I mean, we knew Roddy Piper came from Winnipeg, but that was it. And so when you start to see, like, there's so much fascinating history about people that went on to international careers out of Winnipeg, which has never been considered by anybody to be a wrestling capital. Um, it was just enough to like spark the next thing. You're like, well, you know what? I did Winnipeg already. I, let me dig into Saskatchewan. There must not be that much there. It's not a wrestling capital either. And you find more fascinating stories of Earl McCready and Stu Hart and, and whatnot. And it just like, it just sort of like snowballed from there. And now between, you know, the online resources and these like, you know, social media communities that have popped up where you've got like these either specific geographies of interest or specific time periods of wrestling or sites devoted to specific wrestlers. There's like so much information every day that uh, you're like, oh, there's some new information on George Gordienko, for example. And now we're now we're into a deep dive over here and I get distracted on these side projects from time to time. I, I just wonder, like... <laughs> Like I have a, you know, the, the mind of, you know, the hamster and the spinning wheel, like, and certain things, it's kind of like, like, to me, it sounds like you're very barbaric YouTube, right? Is what you're going for. And you're, you're doing all the footwork here. 
But do you ever go, well, hey, I'm going to look for, uh, you know, whatever, pick a name of, of a guy, you know, and then you, you, you all of a sudden go, hey, wait a minute, I know that other name. And then you're like three hours into the other name and you go, oh, shit, I got to go back and get his. Like how yeah. many times have you been sidetracked and gone, oh, no, <laughs> I got to go back again because you get so hooked into some other guy, right? Well, you know, this is kind of funny because uh, in the 90s, when I first started collecting the results, you know, I was like really gung ho about it. And maybe I knew, you know, Tony Candelo had run like the 20, 20 show run of tour of shows. And uh, so I said, no, hey, I'm going to Regina and I'm on the road with Chi Chi Cruz. What I'm going to do is I'm going to print this up in a, in a book. I'm going to Sherlock's mind it and then have him look through it and then tell me what's missing. And uh, so we were about three minutes into the car ride. This book comes out. And I'm like, hey, Cheech, like, you know, take a look at this and tell me what's missing. And he looks, he's like, wow, there's a lot of stuff here. He goes, I've got no idea. This is just too much. And so I said, well, maybe if I, if I could make it easier, if I distill that guy's career record out, then he could take a look at the dates and see like, oh yeah, you're definitely missing this, this, and this that I remember, or you're missing this tour from South Africa or whatever the case was. And so I started to do those individual career records thinking like, yeah, this is going to be like the linchpin. It's going to help guys to, to fill in the blanks. And I would give them to guys and they would say, holy shit, you know my career better than I know my career. <laughs> uh, so it, it wasn't really helpful. But later on, um, actually, when my when my book came out in 2009, uh, some of the guys that I got to sit down and interview um, were Don Leo Jonathan, uh, Moose Murawski, Dean Higuchi. Uh, and I was just so, so blown away by these guys, Don Leo in particular, because he was just such a gentleman. Uh, you know, invited me over into his home. We probably talked for three hours. Uh, and then I was like visiting his house once a month and just, just mm -hmm. hanging out and talking to Don Leo. And so I showed up at his house and I had, I had researched his record. He had started in 1950 and wrestled to 1980 uh, and had close to 4,000 matches during his career. And I just brought it as a thank you. Like, it's really appreciate you taking your time. And he took a look at it and he was so overwhelmed by the gift that I realized like, this is something that is important. This isn't about making money. This is just about paying respect. Uh, and so it became a, a, a series of side projects that I've done where if I'm, uh, particularly if I'm going to the Cauliflower Alley Club in Las Vegas, where I know a, a certain number of legends are gonna be there, I'll specifically research their careers uh, mm -hmm. and then give it to them. And uh, you know, guys like Nick Bockwinkle, uh, when I gave him his record, I gave him his record uh, plus his dad's record, because uh, his dad had been a wrestler as well. And Nick uh, looked at it, and he teared up. And he said, you know what, when you're living the lifestyle of a wrestler, and it's all about making the next day, you never bother to write anything down or, or to really appreciate what you've done. And you don't do it until the end, when it's all over, and you're like, you know what, I wish I had kept some of that, that would be interesting to look upon now. And so now he's, you've given me my life in a book. Uh, and um, so just that has always been really rewarding. And now I've done, I think, you know, close to a hundred individual career records for wrestlers that I've been able to give in, to the individuals uh, or in the case of, of if they've passed, been able to give to their families. Um, and so that, that's been kind of one of my side projects. That's been a bit of a passion project. 
that uh and and I, and it's like that you never know you're reading a name one day and you're like you know what sweet daddy seeky that's an interesting guy i want to dig into him for a little while and then next thing you know you spent the next two weeks away from your project just working on sweet daddy seeky um but uh it, it it sure is a fun ride you may mention their events uh cauliflower alley club now you're the editor for the for the newsletter for them correct i am yes yeah, so just um, for those that don't know, can you just give like a very brief uh, synopsis of the Cauliflower Alley Club? Because it plays a pretty key part in wrestling history as well. It does. And, and I don't think that I really, at the beginning, you know, when I first uh, was introduced to the Cauliflower Alley Club, nobody really told me the mission. I just thought, well, this is a great, great place to go to meet some of the legends of the business. Uh, and unlike a fan fest, when you show up to the Cauliflower Alley Club as a member and you put your name tag on and you walk in the room, you're just one of the boys. So if you fall into step with Ted DiBiase or Terry Funk on your way to breakfast, you, you know, next thing you know, you're having breakfast with Terry Funk and Ted DiBiase. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the, the really important thing about the Cauliflower Alley Club is the Cauliflower Alley Club functions and how it, how it began. Uh, it began informally as an association of wrestlers, to help wrestlers who had fallen on hard times. So, you know, if you have, uh, you know, guys working in an environment where they couldn't get health insurance, uh, now they've, they've reached a point in life where, you know, now they need a wheelchair accessible van or they uh, need to get a hip replacement. And in the States, that's a pretty foreboding situation. Uh, so it began with a, a wrestler turned actor named Mike Mazurki uh, from the forties and he was doing very well. And so, when guys would sort of have a hard time, they would come look for Mike because they knew that he was doing all right. And uh, so they'd say, hey, I've got this problem or I need to get, a, you know, I need to replace the engine in my car or whatever the issue was. Uh, you know, Mike would get the information and then he'd sort of put up the call informally to the circle of wrestlers and say, hey, our brother here is having some hard times. I'm in for $200. What can I count you in for? And that's how it began. Uh, and then it's grown uh, incredibly, now there's over 6,000 members of the Cauliflower Alley Club worldwide. Uh, the big event that they host annually is a reunion in Las Vegas. Uh, this year it'll be held at the Plaza Hotel in just off the uh, uh, Fremont Street. Um, and uh, you know, the, the, the honorees that have already been announced for this year are the Rock and Roll Express, Kevin Sullivan, Conan, um, Tommy Rich was just announced today. Um, and so the reunion is, is the big fundraiser, uh, you know, for the organization every year. But I think that, you know, one thing that they haven't been really open about because, you know, kind of in that old school mentality of kayfabe, um, they haven't really been open with what they do. Um, but it's, it's, you know, any wrestler, uh, who has, who has fallen on hard times, you know, whether it was, and, and I'll share some examples of, of people that have been very open about, uh, the club helping them, you know, one man gang, for example, uh, you know, lives in Louisiana. And when those hurricanes came through a few years ago, lost everything, uh, you know, everything in his home was written off. He needed some, some help. Uh, Paul Orndorff, uh, you know, had some troubles in his, in his later years. Um, you know, there was, you know, monies for surgeries and wheelchair accessible vans and, and, you know, support like that. And I think it's just such a, such a fantastic cause so I'm glad to be part of that organization. I just want to get this straight. Do you have to be part of the Cauliflower Alley to get the help from them? Or is it sort of, 
hey guys, uh, he's not part of the group, but we need to help out, you know, so-and-so. Um, I think, you know, the, the preference is to support members, but yeah. I also know that their fundraising has been going so incredibly well that uh, it, it's just a matter of someone making an application. Yeah. So you, you make an application on the website. Um, you know, I, I think it definitely helps if you know somebody who yeah. uh, is a member that can, that can kind of, you know, vouch for you as well. But, you know, in a lot of cases, you know, basically what they want to identify is that, yeah, you, you know, you are a member of the wrestling fraternity, uh, you know, here's where you worked or how long you worked, uh, you know, here's, here's what your, your ask is, you know, and we're, we're not talking about, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in support that we're talking about, like just sort of essential support that helps you, you yeah. know, get, get I see, I'm curious. I was only curious as to uh, what came to light in the last day here anyway with Virgil uh right you know so I'm I I know Virgil's had some issues here there and along the way and yeah we, we've heard stories but you know is that someone that could reach out to the cauliflower alley and say hey you know maybe I have been a bit of a, a yo-yo here and there but yeah. uh you know I may need a wheelchair in uh, two weeks you know yeah, and and definitely there are causes like that. I think yeah. uh, I think you know in the case of of the one man gang, for example, he wasn't a member of the Cauliflower Alley Club, and and we had only found out about it because there had been like a GoFundMe campaign started. Yeah, uh, and so we had reached out to the uh, executive and said, "Hey, can we support this?" And they said, "Yeah, but we don't want to do it through GoFundMe because GoFundMe takes a piece of that action. We want to go and support directly. So get us his contact information, and we'll reach out." But yeah, um, definitely. I think you know any any wrestler in need uh, definitely should be aware of the Cauliflower Alley Club and and apply. And as far as membership to the Cauliflower Alley Club, that's open to anybody, though, correct? Wide open, yeah. yeah. So mm -hmm. uh, if you go to their website, caulifloweralleyclub.org, I think an annual membership is about thirty five dollars. Um, or you can get a lifetime membership, which is something like three hundred dollars. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah a very worthwhile cause for sure i mean it's a way for the fans to give back to the to the wrestlers as well who put their lives on the line when you think about it for through their careers yeah and it, you know it's just such a you know it's almost and i'm a words guy but i i struggle to find the words to really talk about how impactful some of those interactions have been at cauliflower alley club and i i really can't say enough about it Wrestling with the Truth podcast brought to you by Mark's Wrestling Masks. You want to look like a champ or you want to look like a chump, he's got your ugly mug covered. Check him out on Facebook, Mark's Wrestling Masks. That's M-A-R-C apostrophe S, Wrestling Masks. Just to, to veer away a little bit uh, at the moment, uh, Vance, like we were just talking off air about... Uh, you know, wrestling and your wrestling as well. I mean, you, as you stated, it's, what it's a near thirty-year career for you so far in the ring, and still, yeah. still going at this point. I believe you're a tag team champion at the moment, are you not? A tag team champion for two companies right now. There you go. Yeah, yeah, so, still going strong. But uh, you mentioned and something uh, I think Machino appreciate this too. We were just chatting about he was uh, talked about wrestling Robbie Royce and just the difference between. The new generation where you're wrestling and it's kind of like, oh, we got to go back and forth and figure out what the heck's going on. And then you just step into the ring with a guy like Robbie Royce 
and there's no talking, nothing. It's just we know what we're going to do, and away we go. So um, you just want to touch on the that, that old school mentality versus new school mentality that you're seeing, as because you're seeing both. Like you're you're involved with both sides of it at the moment because you're doing so many different uh, different matches and different styles and different opponents. Yeah, I think you know people that, I mean, really aren't aware of of how much the the industry has changed, and and so. You know, in in my way of of, of uh, teaching and the way I was brought in, it was it was all about understanding where you are on the card, and uh, understanding what that means uh, is needed from you in terms of that crowd. So if I'm in the main event, yeah, I understand that it is my my job to leave people's jaws on the floor and have them going, "Oh my God, I can't wait to buy another ticket." Uh, if I'm in the opening match. It may be that I need to educate that audience in how to react to a wrestling environment. I mean, if, if you go into, you know, a little community center or a school somewhere, you're definitely going to have somebody in the crowd that's never been to live wrestling before. Maybe their only exposure has been to it on TV. So to educate them about, yeah, it's absolutely okay and encourage for you to yell and scream and boo and jeer and, and all of those things. So, you know, knowing where you are, uh, on the card and knowing that the people in those roles know what they're doing. Um, so kind of the highest honor, I mean, as a wrestler getting into the business, you always want to be in the main event. Uh, but the highest honor I found as I had more time in the business is to be the opener. Uh, because that means that you know what you're doing and you're going to get the people going on the right path for the rest of the night. And so when I walk into a locker room now, you know, and I'm working with these young guys and they're kind of looking, oh, I get to work with this experienced guy and they're really excited and they show up with like a notebook with like five pages of notes, but all the stuff that they want to do tonight. And I'm like, I'm never going to remember any of that. And I don't even want to talk to you right now. What I want to do is I want to go watch the opening match. And you can see that they're frustrated and confused. Uh, and I just need to go see the first five minutes of the opening match to see how the people are on that night. Cause that's going to inform, you know, the way that we engage, uh, and I'm going to watch and see like our guys so immersed in the moves that they're doing that they forget about the people, because if they are, then everything I'm doing is about the people. Um, you know, there's some really, really great performers that have been able to mesh you know, both sides of that. And one of the best that I've, that I've seen in, over the last year was Michael Richard Blaze out of Edmonton. Uh, you know, very, very new school in the terms of delivery of his moves, but very, very old school in his engagement of the crowd. Um, and so I think that, you know, I had like, like a five-year break when I was completely out of wrestling. And so to come back, what is old is new again or at least what is what what is old is unique because nobody else is doing that anymore uh so it's kind of helped me create my own you know bit of a niche uh where promoters really get it and they're like yeah we need to have them um but i, I don't you know i i sometimes feel that when i walk in the locker room that not everyone is excited to see that oh i've got fans nevada tonight <laughs> but you know maybe you see now, even just what you're saying, if they listen to the podcast or or that was the, let's say you, you gave the pregame speech, it makes sense, man. Like it's, I don't think the young guys understand that. And I know I've had this conversation with BC even just this week out at the uh, CWE event and uh, with Danny Duggan and uh, Big Vito 
And I, that first opening match, the guys come out of the curtain and it's so easy to explain who the heel is right away and yes. who the face is. And it was, it's exactly as you said, and you wonder sometimes, well, why, you know, why is that guy who's been around forever in the opening match? Shouldn't he be, like you said, you know, the mentality is, Hey, Sammy main main event. They want that, but yeah. it's just, it was, it was kind of nice. Like I kind of got goosebumps sitting there in this auditorium watching these guys and instantly they already know who they're supposed to cheer for and who they're supposed to boo. Right. Yeah. And, and, and you know, as well as I do, all it would take is walking to up to a kid and ripping his sign. Yes. Well, you already know you're going to be booing that dude. Yes. Right? But, yeah. And uh, so I'm glad that you brought that up today because I like the way you really explained, you know, from the Wiley veteran coming in, like, Hey, I just have to see the opening match. We'll talk in a minute. Right. Yes. And don't take And don't take offense. Any young guys out there, don't take offense. When a veteran says, I just want to go watch the opening match. What you should do is go with him. Don't, yes. don't, don't, don't chirp your ear off. Like I'm doing to you right now. Just go watch the match with him and, and you'll be, yes. and they'll gain that knowledge too and go, Holy shit. The guy in the third row is really active. I'm going to, I'm going to go with him. Yes. So thank you for bringing that up. And I would always do that too. You know, I would go out, particularly if I was the opener and I still do this, I go out and, and really do my best to charge them up. And then when I come back, I'll go to the guy who is in the next match and say, this side of the ring, those three seats, that is yeah. your, your hot house, right? If you can get them, you can get the whole house. And yeah, uh, yeah. you know, but in, in terms of the order of the lineup, you know, when I was promoting the CNWA in, in 2012 and 13, I was working very closely with Massive Damage out of Edmonton. Oh, and yeah. uh, Massive veteran guy, very creative guy. Uh, and he had his shows that he would promote in the Edmonton area. And I had my shows in other parts of Alberta. And it was like sort of an ongoing rib that whenever it was a show that I booked, he would be in the main event and I would be in the opener. Uh, and then whenever it would be a show that he booked, he would be in the opener and I would be in the main event. And it was kind of like one upsmanship that way where, yeah. uh, you know, we were each trying to get that spot in the opener. It seems like such a simple formula when you just break it down that, that way. It can be, it, yeah. you know, it really, it really can. And, and, um, you know, this, this weekend, uh, or next, next weekend, May 21st in Vancouver, uh, I've got a, a main event match with the thunder from Jalunder. Uh, and this <laughs> has been kind of a program that has been going on, you know, it was close to wrapped up right when the pandemic hit and then it was renewed after a, you know, a year and a half pause. And this is, uh, a match between two guys that are not, you know, flips and, and memorize a thousand things. You know, in fact, we had a match in Hope where, uh, you know, the, the discussion before the match was simply, what are we doing tonight? And I said, I think we should just go out there and fight. <laughs> and that was it. That was the whole discussion about the match. So I know it's going to be a hard-hitting match. I know Sunday morning is going to suck to get out of bed. But I also know that the people in Vancouver on May 21st are going to get a hell of a match. That's all I can ask for. So, uh it's funny. I just thought of while you were talking about keeping the stats and the guys looking at you going, I don't even remember half this stuff. What about yourself? Like, did, were you always keeping your own stats or did you surprise yourself when you're doing your research? I think there, uh, you know, I, I'd always been, I'd always kept a record. So I had a, I've, I've got a running list of my own matches and 
I actually have like one of the original like Hillroy notebooks that I was keeping track of things in. And now it's all, of course, like migrated digitally. Um, and I think that, you know, I was, uh, you know, at some level always worried that something will happen in a match or in, in the ring. And then uh, I won't be able to tell my story, mm-hmm. whether I'm physically not here or mentally not here anymore. So to have that all written down, uh, you know, was always important to me. Um, you know, particularly when we got to 2007 and we started to all get very well aware of, you know, CTE and all of these implications of, of brain injury. Um, so I've always kept track. I, I think I was, I was really surprised, you know, as we you know, got to you know, putting together the top 100, how that body of work translates into that list uh, to the point where I was alarmed that I was too high on the list and then I had to remind myself like that's a 30 year career. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's the reason for that. But, you know, also aware that there's going to be like critics out there that be like, Oh yeah, he wrote the book and put himself that high on the ranking. So, you know, I actually spent a month where I was like researching in detail, the five guys behind me on the list to say like, I got to be like behind this guy. You know, there's no way that I can be ahead of this guy on the list. So, um, you know, the dedicated research to, you know, prove or disprove, uh, I'm still going to get roasted anyway, but I know that I've put in the, uh, the effort. Yeah. The, the, the Homer rule. <laughs> yes. I think in an early, early episode of our podcast, we had kind of gotten a discussion about this because being Canadians, I don't know, we always have to compare ourselves to other provinces and things like that. So we tried to think about what was the most prolific province as far as producing big name talent. And we, you know, everybody always says, well, you know, Calgary because of, uh, you know, the Hart brothers or, you know, Winnipeg, of course, you know, Jericho and Omega and all those guys. But you obviously have done the research and I'm not saying give away stuff that's going to be in the book, but in your own personal opinion, what do you feel is, if you could narrow it down, what would you say is the most prolific province as far as wrestling talent, as producing wrestling talent uh, across the board for Canada? Uh. As much as it pains me to say, I'd have to say Ontario. Yeah. Um, you know, because Ontario had, um, you know, the like Hamilton in particular. Hamilton was just like this hotbed of of production for talent. Uh, but in Ontario, you also had this, you know, this direct line access. Like Toronto was one of the first key cities that was latched onto by the American sort of wrestling trust. You know, the, the interest out of New York latched on to Toronto, the interest out of Boston latched on to Montreal. And you've got these like two major wrestling capitals where you have, you know, the, the guys headlining in Boston Garden are headlining in Montreal the same week or they're headlining in Madison Square Garden or headlining in Toronto. But it also created a tremendous opportunity for guys where you might be brand new, a guy like Ivan Koloff, for example. So Ivan Koloff, a farm boy from Chrysler, Ontario, starts wrestling in Hamilton. Well, the next thing you know, like within the first six months of his career, he's wrestling on television in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have these things happening both through Buffalo, New York and into New York State and then uh, through Detroit the other way. Uh, so you had so much talent coming through where you have Abdullah the Butcher and the Tolis brothers, and Waldo Von Erich and Killer Kowalski. Um you know, that we're all from Southern Ontario and had very prolific careers. Right on. Yeah. 
Um, now, uh, me, myself, being from Atlantic Canada, was there anything that uh, opened your eyes and your research about the, uh, as we knew it as the, the Atlantic Grand Prix wrestling, uh, well, Eastern Sports Association, so anything about that where maybe you weren't as familiar with our, our territory? You know, the, the Maritimes has always fascinated me, and I've had times to wrestle down there, uh, wrestled for Emile Dupree in 2001, and, and was back for a few other tours for various promoters uh, over the years. And I think that, you know, the Maritimes uh, is largely underestimated, uh, you know, and, and largely ignored uh, because the Maritimes didn't have the big venues. Yeah. You know, they don't have the 10,000 seat venues. You've got 5,000 seat venues. And so you're not really on the radar. And then being seasonal, uh, yeah. you know, was another thing where people are like, ah, oh, yeah, stuff goes on up there, but we don't really know, uh, you know, but there was, you know, so much that, that happened there and, and the Maritimes was such a key territory, you know, even when you consider their relationship with stampede wrestling. So you got the guys wrestling in the Maritimes in the summer and then the season closes and then they're off to Calgary. Uh, where we had, you know, Leo Burke basically doing that Calgary and, and Maritimes loop. Um, you know, but Leo Burke, and I, I don't, I don't think I'm giving away any secrets here, but Leo Burke is probably the most underappreciated Canadian wrestling legend of all time. And, uh, definitely that will be corrected with this book. Right on. He, he uh, that was probably my first memory of wrestling when I grew up is watching Leo Burke, my grandmother watching Atlantic Grand Prix when I'm, you know, four or five years old. And, uh, just it, we didn't appreciate it back then because you know, I don't. Again, it's a something about being from a place you don't appreciate what you have right there. It's like you got to look elsewhere for it. And then, of course, you know we're look. We got you know Stampede and we got uh, you know the WWF and stuff like that. And you're like, oh, this yeah. isn't important now. As I've grown older and just gained such an appreciation for, especially what Leo Burke did between what he did here and then training with Stampede and training wrestlers in the WWF. He was a massive contribution to the wrestling scene it, overall. It was, yeah, it's really incredible. And, you know, what I found is, you know, when I started the results research, if you're doing results on a territory, let's say the Maritimes, you can find the results on Halifax or the mm -hmm. lineups for Halifax easily. You know, they're, they're out there, you know, they've been shared maybe back in the days when it was like the dirt sheets where you would clip the, the ad out of the newspaper and mail it into some guy who would print it on a, photostat kind of uh you know distribution list and send it out um you know halifax was it was always available but some of the other pro uh, parts of the province and, and the circuit have been harder to find but when you can start to put together the whole week uh and uh and on the east coast there's nobody better than than uh, robert seeley uh i've known him for 20 years he is like the the maestro of the maritimes and he has been in the, you know, doing the same thing that I was doing before. Papers weren't online. He was in there getting the microfilms. And he's put together like the night-by-night -night schedule of Atlantic Grand Prix and, and Eastern Sports Association. And so when you see like, uh, you know, Leo Burke, you know, over his career, Leo Burke has wrestled more matches in Canada than anyone. <laughs> and the guy behind him, is 800 matches behind him like that's right. how how far and away uh you know he is um but when you really see that that body of work and and to try to explain that to people today to say no no like the territories is not the same as the independence it's right. not it's not at all and you see the day-to-day -day schedule of a guy like a leo burke or a maurice Vachon working the territories yeah it's 
unreal. We start to consider, you know, the, you know, Mad Dog had a 35 year career. Commonly among the, the legendary wrestlers, there's this number and, and they'll say, I wrestled 6,000 matches in my career. And it's probably the most common number you'll hear. And what they've done is they've just done sort of a crude calculation to say, well, I wrestled uh, 300 matches a year for 20 years. And they come up with that number. You know, there was highs and lows and maybe injuries and illnesses and, and things like that, that. Those numbers aren't aren't real. I've, I've yet to come across a 6,000 match career. Some in the in the 4,000s. Yeah. Um, but uh, at one point when I did Mad Dog with Sean's record and, and gave it to him, a couple couple months later, I had a call from a documentary producer who was doing a documentary on Mad Dog. And he said, yeah, I called Mad Dog. And he, he told me to call you because you know his career better than he does. Uh, and, and, and you have it more complete. And at that point, I think I only had about 2,500 matches for Mad Dog. Now I'm closer to 3,500. Right. But, uh, and, and always adding, like those records are never, never complete. We want to make sure that they're thorough and they're done. So, sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, you may mention too about, uh, as you said, getting all this information down in the day and age where, you know, you talk about CTE and stuff like that, and you want to be able to, to have that information. I'm just thinking about what an impact this is going to make for families of some of these wrestlers who've either passed or are suffering from, from CTE, dementia, all that kind of stuff, where they're not able to recount that history. This is going to be a, a massive uh, effect on those, those family members. I think it's, you know, it's really cool because sometimes they'll reach out and uh, you know they're, they're looking for some information. Probably the best relationship that came out of uh, research like that was uh, with Ted Gordienko. Uh, so Ted is uh, the nephew of George Gordienko, who is legendary wrestler out of Winnipeg uh, and identified by Lou Thez as the greatest Canadian wrestler of all time. Uh, George Gordienko uh, was actually named by uh, Lou Thez. He wanted George to be NWA world champion in 1956. Uh, but George, a few years before that, had been uh, deported from the United States for suspicion of being a communist, uh, you know, at that time frame when the, those things were happening. So there was actually like formal appeals to the U.S. State Department to allow uh, th this to be lifted. So that George Gordienko could be NWA world champion, <laughs> uh, you know, and it's just part of uh, fascinating. There's a new book out about George Gordienko, freshly, um, by Stephen Verrier. Uh, it's it's freshly out. It's fantastic read about the life and, and career of George Gordienko. But Ted had reached out after George had passed and said, I'm looking to, to do some research on my uncle's career. You know, after he retired from wrestling, he became a pretty celebrated painter. Uh, and he was kind of one of those guys, he compartmentalized life. So I'm not a wrestler anymore. So I don't talk about wrestling. I don't collect anything to do with wrestling. Now I'm an artist. That's what I do. Um, so I had had some information and it was enough for Ted to start his own research. And he traveled internationally, sort of curate, you know, all of these artifacts of George's career. Uh, and then, uh, just before Christmas, Ted got in touch with me and said, listen, I've, I've, uh, been told by my doctor to get my affairs in order. My heart isn't uh, doing what it's supposed to do. I'm, I'm wondering if you would come to my home and uh, take possession of all this material on George Gordienko and his personal memorabilia. And I'm completely floored, uh, you know, that he would entrust me with that. And mm -hmm. so I went over and I'm thinking, you know, it's a couple of boxes of stuff. And it was 12 huge boxes 
of material. Uh, they covered not only like his early life and family life, but his wrestling career uh, and then his career in art, uh, you know, including, you know, original newspapers from Iraq and Greece and India and, and all of this stuff is remarkable. I'm going to, it's going to probably take, and I really resisted the urge. I put them all in the garage. I resisted the urge to dig into them because I knew if I get into that Gordienko stuff, then this book is going to be delayed by another six months. But uh <laughs> The Gordienko Project is probably the, the next thing to sink into. We'll change the name to The Never-Ending Story. It, you know, it really, you know, and it's, it's kind of funny because you get to a project like this, you know, the, the book project has been big. And, and as I'm getting near the end, and then my wife would be like, you know, like, you really need to, like, get away from the computer right now and come and watch a movie with us or something. And I'd be like, it's only this week. Like, I'm, I'm so close to being done. She goes, yeah, until the next project. <laughs> Uh, you know, there's always another project. Yeah. Now, the only thing I was going to ask fans now, I'm not asking you to give away your number one as far as your list in the book. I want to ask you personally, just in your own opinion, who was your go-to Canadian wrestler? And did it change prior to the book versus now what you we researched? In terms of a favorite? Yeah. Just a, who you really, that was your person that you looked up to. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's changed uh as a result of the book but definitely changed over my career so getting in in the 90s i mean it was sort of at the height of of bret hart's main event run in the wwe uh so bret hart being a canadian guy who had ascended to that level uh was huge inspiration early on i would say as i really got become a master of the art of what it is that we do I would say that the shift came away from Bret Hart and went more to Roddy Piper. <laughs> so what was, what was the reason why you, you went to Roddy? I think it's, you know, Roddy Piper, you know, on, on different levels. First of all, he started as a 160 pound kid in Winnipeg. I started as a 160 pound kid in Winnipeg. Uh, and he was able to, to, to transition that. And uh, I mean, people, uh, I think they they forget that this 160 pound kid from Winnipeg main evented the first WrestleMania. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and here was a guy who that that uh, you know people aren't necessarily studying his matches, but nobody to this day can top a Roddy Piper promo, mm-hmm. uh, and that ability to talk people into the seats and make money, and it's something that. I'm still teaching to the young guys today. It's like, yeah, you can go and do all those great moves, but unless someone's buying a ticket to come and see it, it doesn't matter. Right. So we've started this very, you know, old school, like television style, you know, like gorilla pit promo uh, session where, you know, we'll get to the building, you know, five hours before the matches, we set up the camera and we've got the interviewer there. The whole crew is in the room. Now go cut your promo. And so we'll be doing that a month ahead. So we'd be, you know, the, all the promos for May 21st in Vancouver were cut on April 30th in Abbotsford. Uh, so you, you know what you're, where you're going, you know what you need to talk about now. Now can you deliver? And at the first, like these promos, and some of them, you know, we had no choice. We, these, this is what we have to work with. We got to post them. Uh, we're brutal, <laughs> brutal, brutal, brutal. Uh, uh, but now after a year, these guys are starting to really get it. It's starting to click for them. Uh, and so we're able to sort of bring some of that old school 
mentality and 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 uh, in ways that's still relevant to them because if you can't cut a promo, you're not getting a contract. Uh, but to be able to think on your feet with someone someone handing you a scripted promo to read back convincingly, uh, you know, find your voice, find who you are as a performer, as an individual, and now now deliver that. Um, so sometimes we, we do it where it's it's kind of an easy way where we're going to put the guys who cut the strongest promos first and we'll work our way down to the weakest promo. And then the next time we'll come back and the guy that's the weakest is first because sometimes, you know, after you've heard some good promos, you keep stealing stuff from other people's material. And so you're getting a lot of repetition of the same lines. Like you better bring your A game because I'm going to, well, now I've heard that in five promos already. <laughs> so we'll let the weakest guys go first so that the, the strongest guys on promos have a pivot and can say something that is completely unique and different and, and uh, still powerful. Right on. Right on. It's an interesting thing, you know, so, uh, I mean, <laughs> you know, my alter ego. Right? Yeah. Um, and I had, a at the event this weekend, of course I was doing a couple of, uh, you know, interviews and station IDs for wrestling with the truth. And I actually had, one of the guys watching as, you know, I was with, uh, with Danny Duggan and he said to me, how are you that quick? Like, how do you come up with that stuff? And, uh, and I said, you know what, it's just practice, right? Practice makes yeah. perfect. And yeah, I'm not big time, but I got to act like I am when I'm here. Right. And yeah. the guy said to me, yeah, I never really thought of it that way. You know, like acting big time. I mean, yeah, you got to act like your alter ego when you were like, so when I was management uh, for one of the wrestlers that I was with, right. I acted again, I acted like I was the toughest guy in the world, but the minute I get in the ring, I got to be like, I'm I'm the wimp. Right. Yes. And, and and I think just what you said with the cutting the promos, that's so important to like, for you to sit there and study it and go, okay, you know what our weakest ones first, right. It's not even, you're not even going by talent at that point in ring talent. You're going by, listen, cutting a promo. They don't want to, it's for example, like, I don't want to see Ricochet. I like when Brock Lesnar talks now and that's yeah. the guy who's putting the asses in the seats. Yes. And, and I try to explain that sometimes to other people I'll say, Hey, listen, I'm not saying that, you know, Ricochet can't wrestle. I'm just saying he doesn't fill the seats. Yes. And, and I'm so, again, that's the second point you brought today that, it's so, I'm so glad because here's a 30 year guy and here's some schlep and a mask telling guys three days ago, the, almost the exact same thing. And, and we think on the same wavelength that it's all about the mouthpiece. And that's why Hogan put every ass in the seat because he could yap. Yeah. And I mean, so he, I had find... more than, he had more than mouth to him, but what I mean is yeah, his promos were electric. And I find that, you know, we'll, we'll go through a promo or guys will send me something. They'll say, Hey, I cut this. What do you think? And I'll watch it back. And then I typically will end up going on YouTube and finding an old school promo, uh, you know, the baby face from the seventies or eighties and say, this is more the energy that we're looking for. You know, whether it's like, we got a big muscle guy. I want you to watch this Hercules Hernandez promo, you know, or, or we've got that, that up and coming baby face. I really want you to watch some Ricky Morton today. I really want you to see this, right? This is how, you know, we deliver that. And, and I think that in more scenarios than I can imagine, Piper stuff keeps coming up. Uh, and probably the most infamous Roddy Piper promo was when he was working with Vancouver All-Star Wrestling in the early 80s. 
setting up for a tag team showdown with him and Rick Martell against the sheep herders. And he was showing the sheep herders how serious he was. And he broke the beer bottle over his head on the promo. Uh, you know, and if you can find it, what's even more entertaining is the sheep herders rebuttal promo to Piper's beer bottle promo, but it's hard to find. I've only ever found it once and uh, can't find it again. But, you know, these are, these are the types of things that, uh, still, you know, have stood the test of time and, and would still deliver that shock value today delivered correctly. Sure. That, that, that's funny you mentioned that, you know, it, it is true. Uh, you know, you see a specific promo and it just sticks with you forever because it, whether you're in the business or you're, you're outside looking in something, something clicks with that guy who made that promo and even for me, so I was a, a young entertainment person. And again, I'm going to go back to Hogan. Just what you said with the sheep herders, you remember this part. I can't, I never want to remember the savage, the cream of the crop and the creamer. But for me, I think my, my the, and I, again, I'm a Hogan fan. Obviously, you know that. I was in Saskatoon in some, you know, low dive motel. I could just basically kind of see some colors clicking back in and around with the Hogan thing. And he was talking about the undertaker. And again, I've never found this promo and, and Hogan is, he, I just see him so wound up and he talks about, and even the actions like guys, guys will just talk, but they don't use actions. Right. Like if everyone was Italian, they'd be a better wrestler uh, or Ukrainian. Right. They all talk with their hands with it, but he talked about getting the scalpel and stabbing the undertaker in the heart and dragging the scalpel down and and it's theater of the mind. And I just, again, I can never find that promo because I'd love to go back and just see that promo because I have to see the match now. I knew he wasn't going to get a scalpel, but I I had to see it because I, he was going to tear the undertaker's heart out if he had one. And it's just, guys don't get it. Yeah. So many times now where, where I'm, where I'm referencing something. And then I have to remind myself that, you know, this 25 year old kid who's only been following wrestling since he was five years old, doesn't know wrestling before 2000. So when yeah. I'm talking about this 1991 promo in WCW where the Dangerous Alliance walks in on Sting after he's won the world title, uh, you know, I can still recite that promo word for word. Uh, but that's before this kid was even born, the standing in yeah. front of me. Uh, so, so, <laughs> so then, you know, I'll spend like furious, frustrating hours trying to find that <laughs> clip on YouTube uh, and un- un- fruitlessly uh, and then find 20 other promos that uh, kind of like going down the wormhole, right? Well, maybe yeah. this is it. No, well, well, this yeah. looks good. I better... There you go. Yeah. Well, well I, I'm I... going to look for the sheep herders. You look for my Hogan promo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I say the same thing like uh, about Don Morocco in the early 80s. Just watch some of his stuff in the WWF and the promos that he did too. I mean, these guys were just masters at it and they could get you so riled up and want to get to the arena to watch these shows. So it's, it's such a lost art. It definitely is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Vance, I really appreciate the time you've taken for us. Not, not just to talk about wrestling in the book, but I, I love, we got like a, a, a history lesson and we got um, basically a seminar on, on what to do. So I love that. That's what we try to do with this show is like, remind people what works in wrestling. So I really appreciate awesome. you that. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send the link out to these young guys and tell yes. them that this is a necessary listening. Exactly. So the book is called Uncontrolled Chaos, Canada's Remarkable Professional Wrestling Legacy. 
Where can people find this at the moment? We are uh, still in, in the pre-order phase. I mean, sort of the final like push and pull with the publisher about what they're allowed to cut, which is nothing. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and that will, uh, that will determine the release date, but we're now well into layout. Uh, there's over 335 pictures that we've now reviewed one by one uh, <laughs> to make sure that none of those get cut either. Uh, and, uh, but the, and I, I kind of joke about it, but the relationship has been really good. But we sh we're we're looking at a summer release date, and uh, I'll be really excited to hit the streets with this book and get back out on tour and and see fans across the country. Sure. So, and for pre-order, they can just go to the Facebook site, correct, and just uh, message you on that. Yeah, that's the easiest. Go to the Facebook page, Uncontrolled Chaos Book, and uh, drop us a message. We'll get you on the list. And uh, the response has been really, really strong. I think it pre-orders uh have already eclipsed the first print run of my last book nice. uh and and we haven't even shared the cover art yet uh so i'm very excited for that to be the the next milestone here for people yeah and i i highly encourage any of our listeners go over to that facebook page and follow it because there's some great teasers that are going on lots of history that you're that you're giving away for free on on this on the facebook page and if you're a wrestling fan that loves anything with the history of it it's worth it just to follow so but yeah get on there get that pre-order in let's make sure this book hits number one when it comes out awesome and uh as far as any other contacts any social media if you want to throw it out there you go right ahead i think i think right now uh my whole focus has been the book Okay. Uh, any, any other emails that have come in, like, sometimes even podcast invitations, uh, I'm sleeping through them because, uh, I'm getting the latest stats on the Hollywood blondes in, in Montreal in 73. Uh, so <laughs> the uncontrolled chaos book is the best, best way to contact me right now. Perfect. Perfect. And they want to see you wrestle. I will be in, uh, Kelowna, Friday, May 20th, Vancouver, Saturday, May 21st, Aldergrove, BC, uh, Sunday, May 22nd. And uh, so far, those are the only dates on the calendar, but uh, there's going to be more dates announced soon. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for your time. And for Vance Nevada, for NWO Machine, I am BC Hunter saying that oh, we are out of here. <laughs>